Okay, let me read our passage for tonight. This is James 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but, uh, but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, as we just sang together, um, in light of uh, our passage for this evening, uh, we ask that you would break our heart for what breaks your heart. That we would learn um, to love as we have been loved by you. And so use your word tonight. This is a big passage, one that speaks uh, not just to us as individuals, but to our culture, um, to our society, um, and something that, that we see the consequences and the effects of all around us. Um, and yet you, you've addressed it to us. And so help us to consider our own hearts and how your word speaks to us tonight. Uh, would you do that through the preaching of your word? Um, we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you, how can you show that you have truly understood the gospel? Okay, how, how can you demonstrate that you really, really grasp the gospel? Uh, what would you say to that question? Maybe some of you would say, like, growth in personal holiness or uh, fighting sin in your life. Maybe some of you would say, uh, like a greater passion for evangelism or a love for the church, um, a desire to serve the church. Maybe those are some of the first things that come to mind as you think about that question. Well, as we've gone through this book, James has been giving us a few answers to that question, right? So far in chapter one, one way he says that we really demonstrate that we've truly grasped the gospel, that we really understand our faith, is through how we respond to trials and temptations. Right? He says that the way that we respond actually reveals the genuineness of our faith. And not only that, but the trials and the, and the suffering actually refines our faith. Right? It actually helps to build our faith. Um, another answer he gave is how we respond to God's word. So he says, uh, do you only hear or do you only listen to God's word? Uh, but do you, or do you do it also? Right? Are you a doer and not just a hearer of God's word? That's another way we can tell that you've truly grasped uh, the gospel, and the Christian faith. 
Well, when we turn to our passage for tonight, James gives us another answer to that question. He gives us another uh, barometer, another measuring stick for how to tell if you've really, truly grasped the gospel. And as you guys read, the, the litmus test that he gives is something that I think we wouldn't think of right off the bat, right? It's not one of the first things that would come to mind. But the test that he gives us is the test of partiality. Do we show partiality with other people? He says one way that we demonstrate that we have a genuine faith, one way, that we, one way that we demonstrate that we have truly grasped the gospel, that it's really taken root in our hearts and changed who we are, is by how we view and how we treat other people, especially those who are different than us. Now look at verse 1. Um, James says, My brothers, show no partiality, Right, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, let's define what we mean um, right off the bat. What is partiality? Uh, that word translated literally means receiving the face. Okay, receiving the face. And I think that kind of helps describe uh, the definition for us. It's to receive or to welcome or to regard someone uh, or other people based on the face. And what we mean by that is based on external appearance, right? Based on something that we see on the outside, uh, other translations use the word favoritism, or you can even use prejudice or discrimination. Uh, that is partiality, to receive the face. Um, and he gives, James gives us a picture of what it looks like in verses 2 and 3. All right, so look at it with me, verse 2. For if a man wearing, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, uh, or sit down at my feet. Okay, so that's a picture of partiality. Um, I read that and I was trying to imagine if like, that same scenario happened here at Lighthouse. Um, and I would like to believe that everyone here is so gospel-centered that I think like, we would welcome the poor man. Um, but I'll just speak for myself. I think personally, I could like, totally see myself doing exactly what James says there. Right? Like if some random guy in uh, smelly clothing, just walked through our doors on a Sunday morning, and we'll just assume he's not dangerous or anything. Uh, but if like someone like that came in, uh, I'm ashamed to say that I think it would be pretty easy for me just to like be automatically suspicious. Um, I think like if we were talking about a seat in the sanctuary for this person, I think I would be more concerned about the people that he's sitting next to rather than the seat that he gets. Right? That, I think. Uh, I admit that that would be really easy for me to do. On the other hand, if someone like, uh, say, Jeremy Lin, right, fellow brother in Christ, if Jeremy Lin showed up one Sunday, uh, it would be a totally different story, right? Uh, I was going to say Kanye West, but then I think he's too provocative, and I think some people would judge if he's, like, really a Christian or not. Um, but Jeremy Lin, very likable guy, right, brother in Christ. If Jeremy Lin came in, uh, how, would, how would I treat him? I'd say, oh, hey, uh, Mr. Lin, Lin Sanity, right? Let me personally introduce you to all of our elders. Uh, by the way, this is our basketball court here. Um, we have open gyms on Monday nights, Wednesday nights. You're welcome to come. Uh, by the way, we are outgrowing our space here. We could use a new building. <laughs> now, now, obviously, that is an extreme example, right? But I think, uh, I think we all get the point that uh, to show partiality is to look at people and to treat people differently simply based on some external thing. 
And if you look at it, if you look at James' example, uh, like, what does he tell us about these people? The only detail that we get is what each person is wearing. And based on what they're wearing, each of those guys gets treated totally different. Now, I think we're all guilty of this, aren't we? And maybe it's to a lesser degree. Uh, maybe it's based on a different kind of distinction. But all of us probably have to admit that we have shown partiality to others based on some kind of external, uh, superficial thing, whether that is someone's social status or ethnicity uh, or how smart this other person is or the brand of clothes that they wear, uh, whatever it might be. We are all guilty of viewing some people the wrong way. Okay, I think that's really what's at the heart of it. We view people the wrong way. And that happens in, in a variety of ways, right? We can either elevate others on a pedestal or we can look down on others as, as being inferior to who we are. And we tend to gravitate towards those who are more like us uh, or those who we think are superior uh, or, or those who we think can get us where we want to go. If you look at verse 4, James says that is exactly what partiality does. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, don't miss uh, what he says about partiality there at, at the very end of that verse. Right? It's this really universal thing. We all would admit that we uh, are guilty of it, that we struggle with it, we can't help it. But James says that is evil. Right? Partiality is evil. You become judges with evil thoughts. Now, what do you think about that? Right? What do you think about the fact that James calls this evil? Because I don't know if we really believe that this is evil. I think, sure, we would probably agree that uh, prejudice or, or discrimination, that that's evil. I think we would all raise our hand to that. Uh, we would agree that partiality taken to the extreme uh, when you start to get to some of the, these like ism words, right? Racism, sexism, classism, uh, ageism, we would agree that that's evil. But showing favoritism, is that evil? Or, or preferential treatment, is it really that bad? I mean, maybe for some of us, it, it almost seems natural and normal. Like it seems uh, strategic even, like uh, a smart thing to do. And we think, oh, it's not that I necessarily want to do it, but, you know, sometimes you just need to do it, right? You need to know how to pull the right strings. You need to, uh, you know, it's about knowing the right people if you want to get that job or that opportunity. Um, it's all about having the right connections. Is that such a wrong thing to do? Now, to clarify, I think, or James is not saying that we shouldn't make any distinctions at all. Okay, in fact, if you look in the rest of the Bible, uh, it says that we should give special place to some people. It says that we should provide for our family. Uh, we should prefer, uh, give preference to other believers. Uh, maybe practically speaking, if there's a first-time visitor that came to church, we should you know, give them extra attention and make them feel welcome. Uh, you hold the door for that sweet little grandma, even though you might not hold it for your friend. Right? We, we give special treatment, but that's done in love. Um, even for people who are like, extra talented, we should give them a platform and put them in front of other people uh, so that they can use their gifts. Right? Those are ways that we, we can uh, make distinctions in love. But what James talks about here, when he says partiality or favoritism, he's talking about how when those distinctions that we make affects how we view those people or how we value them. Okay? Because they are 
this or this, they're less than me. Because they have this or this, they're better than this other person. It's how we view them or value them. Because this person is rich and well-dressed, he or she is more important and valuable in my eyes than that other guy in the shabby clothing. Uh, Because this person is more uh, socially aware, socially adept than that other person who's kind of awkward, he or she deserves my respect and my attention and my effort rather than that other person. And so do you see what's happened uh, in partiality when we show partiality? And something has gone wrong in our hearts. Right? Something has gone wrong so that we're no longer seeing them as God sees them. Now, before we jump in, let me just say that this is uh, a really, really, really big topic. Okay, some of you uh, might hear what James has to say in this passage about partiality, and maybe you'll walk away tonight and you're like challenged to just think about your, your friend group, right, your social circles, and you'll be like, oh, I should talk to someone from this other school. Maybe, maybe that's your application of this passage, and that's good. I think um, that's a good application. But realize that for other people, right, partiality, or if you want to use the word discrimination or even racism, uh, is a much more loaded word. Like, for them, or for some people, it's not just something on the individual level, but it's systemic. It's even societal. Maybe for some people, it's been this, like, really real experience for them or something that they have to face on a, a much more frequent basis than, than some of us here. And so just because it's not something that, like, most of you or some of you uh, encounter often doesn't mean that it's not something that we should also be thinking about more. Okay, so, uh, and, and when I think about all of that, right, when I think about, like, just the wide range of application, just all that this speaks to, uh, in speci- especially uh, just in the news nowadays, when I think about all of that, it, it's actually, I think, really sobering because it shows us that at the heart of a lot of those things are really the same issues. And no one ever wants to admit that we, like, discriminate against certain kinds of people. Right? Like, we never want to say we're guilty of that. We never want to confess that. And so my goal tonight isn't necessarily to address some of those, those like, really massive topics. I'm not trying to break down the culture. Rather, rather, I just want to challenge you from this passage to consider how you view other people. When you look at the person next to you, when you look at that person who just walked into church on Sunday, how do you view that person? It could be certain individuals in your life. It could be certain groups of people, maybe even an entire demographic. James says that in verse 1, it is impossible to hold partiality and faith in Jesus Christ at the same time. You can't be holding both of those things. They're incompatible. And so let me ask you, has the way that you, looked at, so has the way that you look at others uh, been informed and transformed by the gospel? Has it been shaped by the gospel? So if the, the command, if the what is don't show partiality, which is pretty clear, then I think the rest of our passage gives us the why. Okay, and we're going to take this in three points, three reasons why we must not show partiality. Okay, three reasons why we must not show partiality. Uh, reason number one, partiality goes against the character of God. Partiality goes against the character of God. Um, I have two subpoints under this. So first, when we show partiality, we ignore the heart of God. 
Uh, if you were to do a word study on, on this word partiality, you would find this particular phrase show up many, many times throughout the Bible, and it's this, that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Let me just read a few passages for you. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 17. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Uh, Job 34, 19. God shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the, above the poor, for they all are the work of his hands. Ephesians 6, 9. Uh, Paul, speaking to masters, he says, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, right, master of uh, the masters and the slaves, God, who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Okay, so over 20 times in the Bible, uh, it says, God shows no partiality. It's like God really wanted us to know he shows no partiality. He's not impressed by riches. He's not impressed by power. He cannot take a bribe. Uh, in fact, God's impartiality, it totally turns our own man-made distinctions upside down. Uh, look at verse 5 in our passage in James. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are rich in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Uh, now let me ask you, based on that verse, who are the ones who are truly rich and who are the ones who are truly poor? And James says the poor, right, these people that you look down on and disregard in favor of the rich, that they're only poor in the world. See, that they're only poor in the world. In God's economy, James says, he's made them rich in faith, that he's chosen them to be heirs of the kingdom. And James says that is God's heart. Right, you think back a couple weeks ago, or I guess a few weeks ago now, in James 1.27, uh, he defines what pure and undefiled religion is for us. Right? He says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, why do you think he says orphans and widows? Well, it's because orphans and widows don't have anyone to care for them. Right? And God says, that is who I care about. That's who I want you to care about. Right, those who are poor in the world. In fact, I care about them so much, I have such regard for them, that I sovereignly chose them for salvation. Now listen, partiality can go both ways. Right? It's, it's just as possible, I think, to wrongly show prefer, uh, preferential treatment to the poor. Uh, so it's, it's not just rich are the bad people always. Uh, you can go both ways. But I think that God places this like, special emphasis on those that we would consider the last or the least or the poor because it really goes to show that God doesn't view us according to what we can do. Right? God doesn't view us according to what we can offer or what we bring to the table. And James says to show partiality is to ignore that about God. And instead, we place ourselves in God's seat as judge. And whereas, right, we just looked at those passages, whereas God is a perfect and a right and an impartial judge, James says that we become judges with evil thoughts. That we decide who's valuable, we decide who gets our respect, and that we start to think that maybe, maybe that's why God chose us. 
right? Because he, he thought so highly of us. But why did God choose us? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. God, why did God choose you? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why God chose us, that we might boast in him. I'm guessing that there are probably some of you here tonight um, who may have found yourself on the outside looking in. Like maybe you are uh, just the victim of other people's favoritism, of other people's partiality. Maybe you're just not as intelligent or articulate or well-off or, or good-looking or whatever it might be, and because of that, people look down on you. Well, I hope that this particular point is encouraging for you. And that God does not see as man sees. He doesn't evaluate you according to what the world considers valuable and impressive. Rather, over and over again in the Bible, we see that God has this particular regard for those who are last and those who are least. I mean, just think about the kinds of people that Jesus hung out with, right? You have dignity not based on what you bring to the table, but because God made you in his own image. And so as believers, because that's God's heart, and that's the kind of heart that we are called to imitate. Second uh, sub-point is this, that when we show partiality, we reveal what is really taking the place of God. When we show partiality, we reveal what is really taking the place of God. Um, If you look back back at verse 1, James uses this title of Jesus that's pretty unique, actually, in the Bible. Uh, It says, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. And I think the reason that he uses that term is because he's trying to show us something about partiality, which is this, that partiality is really about the glory that rules your heart. It's really about the glory that rules your heart. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you know him as the Lord of glory, then James is asking, why are you, why are you so enamored by this rich man's gold ring? Why are you so uh, caught up with his fine clothing? They are such lesser glories in comparison to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, I think when it comes to favoritism, to discrimination, I think we want to believe that the reason for it is mostly uh, because of things outside of us, right? We want to think that's the reason why it's happened. Um, have you ever been with a friend and, uh, like, you guys are together and you guys spot someone who is famous, um, or at least someone famous to you, because your friend clearly is not as excited about this other person as you are? Maybe that's happened to you before. Um, well, I'm trying to think of, like, a B-list celebrity. We'll use Jeremy Lin again, okay? So, so say you guys see Jeremy Lin, your friend doesn't watch sports, so... He or she doesn't know who Jeremy Lin is. They don't care, right? And so this person is, like, you're, like, freaking out. You're super excited. You want to take a picture, stuff like that. And this other person is, like, like, what's so special about Jeremy Lin? And this is always the response, right? That's Jeremy Lin. (laughs) Thank you. You gave me no new information. (laughs) That's Jeremy Lin. It's like, dude, are you serious? Like, you're supposed to respond that way. Of course he's a big deal. 
that we think that partiality, favoritism, is because of who that person is, right? Of course we should do that. Uh, of course culture tells us to respond in that way. It's expected. And so it must be at least a little justified. But James says, no, that's not how it works. Partiality, favoritism, is really much more about what is inside of you rather than what's outside of you. That the way that you view other people is much more about what rules your heart rather than who those people are. Um, I want you to think for a second about the kinds of people that you hang out with uh, or that you tend to like, gravitate towards or that you want to become like. Now, I'm not trying to make you question all of your friendships, but could that be showing you what it is that you really glory in? Do you tend to drift towards people who are like only people who are good-looking and well-dressed and popular? Could that be revealing an idol of your own reputation? Or do you find yourself tending to only hang out with those who say nice things to you? Or if you are like a type A person, do you only hang out with other people who are type B? Could that be revealing an idol of your approval or of your control? Do you surround yourself with only people who are easy to be around, right? People who are not burdensome, who are not tiring, uh, people who don't require you to step outside of your comfort zone. Could that be revealing to you your idol of comfort? Or do you only hang out with people who are moral? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, right? The Bible speaks often about the positive or the negative influence of the company that we surround ourselves with, but could that be revealing to you an idol of self-righteousness? Why is it that you only hang around with those kinds of people? See, when you deconstruct the criteria for your favoritism, when you trace it back to its starting point, I think oftentimes it shows us really what we value, really the glory that we are after. And so for James's audience, it was the glory of riches, right? It was social position rather than the glory of Christ. Now, we're going to talk about what Jesus calls um, the second greatest commandment in a little bit. But I think there's a reason why uh, so often Jesus mentions love God together with love your neighbor. Um, in Matthew 22, there is this scene where uh, a lawyer from the Pharisees goes to Jesus and he says, Hey, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, you, you know it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Well, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't stop there. And he's answered this person's question. Uh, he could stop right there, but he keeps going, and Jesus says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, why does Jesus do that? Why does he put them together? Well, it's because they're so closely tied together. If you love God, then you will love your neighbor. Right? And if you aren't loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, if you aren't loving God supremely, if you love something else more, then it's going to be difficult for you to love your neighbor. Why? Because your love for this other thing is going to cause you to use other people to get it. Instead of loving people and using things, you are going to use people and love things. And I think that's what James gets at in verse uh, 6 and 7. Right, he says, uh, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So I think from that we get that uh, there is this end goal in mind. 
right? There's this uh, really ulterior motive for, for giving this rich man the seat of honor. And it was hopefully that they would show them favor, right? That they would treat them well because of uh, you treated them well. And of course, James points out that the irony is that these are the ones, these are the people who are giving you a hard time. Right? That's what happens when you love the wrong thing. They don't come through for you. Right? You can't set your hopes on the wrong thing. So that's the first one. Partiality goes against the character of God. Second, um, this is related to what we were just talking about. Partiality goes against the law of love. Okay? Partiality goes against the law of love. Uh, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So in verse 8, James, he shifts a little bit um, to a discussion on what he calls the royal law. And the royal law, I think we can understand as just all of the commandments, all of the laws of God as elaborated and uh, fulfilled by King Jesus. Okay, all of uh, God's teaching and commandments. And James' big idea is that to show partiality towards others is to be partial with God's law. Okay, to show partiality towards others is to be partial with God's law. Um, I think these people in the church might have been tempted to downplay the seriousness of showing partiality. And James makes it pretty black and white for them. He says partiality is a sin. Okay, it's a sin. In fact, it is a sin that convicts you as a transgressor. That you might show partiality towards other people, but realize you cannot be partial with God's law. And once you've broken like one part of God's law, you've become guilty of all of it. Yeah, I think we kind of understand that. Like if a criminal, uh, like a criminal, if they were going to court, they wouldn't be able to say to the judge, hey, judge, like I, I might have robbed the bank, but I didn't jaywalk, right? Or like I didn't drive over the speed limit, which we all break that law, but we don't rob banks. So I don't know how that would work. But you can't argue that, right? Because he broke the law. And obviously it doesn't matter uh, before this judge. He's a transgressor who is guilty under the law. And James is trying to show us when it comes to the law, where they're not just isolated, like, individual commandments. It is uh, this cohesive unity. And why is that so? Well, if you look at what James says, it's because they all come from the same source. Uh, James says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, you are offending the one who commanded it. Uh, we just talked about that in the first point. But here's what I want to focus on. Okay, in verse 8, uh, James talks about fulfilling the law. And then he's going to sum up the entire law with this one commandment. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we're familiar with this. Like we said earlier, Jesus calls that the second greatest commandment. Okay, elsewhere in the New Testament, it actually says that uh, the entire law is fulfilled with that one command. In other words, if, if you live by that command, if you are, obey that, then you should be good with everything else, right? You don't have to worry about not murdering. You, have to, you don't have to worry about not committing adultery if you love your neighbor as yourself because it's covered under that, that broad commandment, the second greatest commandment. And so kind of to review, right, he's, there's two ways that James points to, to the law as this unified whole, right? One, it comes from the same source. It's God who spoke it. And then second, all of these laws are summed up in this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so James says, when you show partiality towards others, what you're doing is you are failing to love your neighbor like God calls you to. And really, that is what the entire law is all about. You are violating the law of love. Now, you might be thinking, who is my neighbor? And that is a great question, um, because someone in the Bible also asked it. Um, But in Luke chapter 10, uh, 25 to 37, there's this lawyer uh, who goes up to Jesus and asks Jesus that same thing. Who is my neighbor? And uh, you might know this, but that question leads to the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And you guys know that parable? Um, Maybe you know it in vegetable form. (laughs) Uh, but this man falls among robbers, and these guys, they rough him up, and they leave him to die. And a priest passes by, and then a Levite, and these two guys, right, these like holy people, don't do anything to help this man. A third person comes, and it's a Samaritan, a non-Jew, and he's the one who takes care of this man, uh, and uh, yeah, takes care of him, so he's back to good health. And then what's interesting about that parable is that Jesus doesn't really directly answer the lawyer's question. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells them this story, and he doesn't answer the question because I think the reason is he's trying to show us that's almost not the right question to ask. I think a couple reasons for that. First, when we ask, who is my neighbor? We're looking to love, or, or we're looking for like limits to our love. We're looking for acceptable boundaries to our love. Like, how far do I have to go? How far before I get to stop? Who are the people that I need to love, and who are the people that I don't? And Jesus shatters that, and he says, no, your neighbor is anyone that God brings your way. It's anyone who enters those doors. In fact, he actually expands what they, how they would have previously understood it, which is uh, their neighbor was their fellow Israelite, and he says, no, your neighbor is even the Samaritan. Your neighbor is even the outsider. And then second, I think Jesus doesn't really answer this question because his emphasis isn't on who your neighbor is, but who you are, right? The kind of person that you are. See, at the end of the day, Jesus says, uh, Jesus asks, which one proved to be a neighbor? And then when the lawyer correctly says, well, well, it was the one who was merciful. It was the Samaritan. And Jesus says, well, go and do likewise. Right? That's what you should take away from this. Go and do likewise. Like even if Jesus did say, okay, well, this person is your neighbor, think about it. You're still going to have to decide whether you love that person or not. And so that's the difference between loving your neighbor versus showing partiality. Partiality says that one of my neighbors is important and one isn't that one of my neighbors is worth paying attention to and one isn't, that one of them is deserving of my love and respect and dignity and this other one isn't. And the difference between one and the other is what this person can do for you, right? That you are worth my time and my attention because of your status or appearance or connections because you have utility in my life because you serve me in some way, because you get me something that I want. But Jesus says to fulfill the law of love is to see everyone as your neighbor. It's to see God as, or it's to see people as God sees them. Um, I think a, a helpful word to describe that is the word honor. 
Um, in verse 6, James says that, that when you show partiality towards the rich, that you have dishonored the poor man. Um, so in your heart, you have viewed this person just as a means to serving yourself and getting what you want. And, and that thing that you want could be anything, right? It doesn't just have to be a higher status. It could be uh, like love or respect or approval or security. That's what you're doing when you're dishonoring someone. So what does it look like to honor someone? I think to honor someone is to assume of them what the Bible assumes of them, right? It's to view them as God views them, like we've been saying. When you honor someone, you, you look at that person and you say, you are my neighbor, that you are uh, an image bearer of God, that you are more significant than I am, that you belong to God, you don't belong to me. And you are my brother, you are my sister, you are someone who Christ has called me to love. You're someone that I can learn from, right, who can build me up and who can make me better. Now, what if, what if those were some of the, the truths, right, that were guiding your thinking as you looked at other people? How would that change things? Last reason here, uh, point number three, partiality goes against the gospel of mercy. Partiality goes against the gospel of mercy. And we left off in verse 11 with this conclusion that as people who are guilty of showing partiality, that we have not only uh, violated the law of love, but we've actually become transgressors of the entire law. Right? We're guilty, we've broken all of it um, in breaking one point. And so what happens to those who have broken the law? And you guys know this, lawbreakers deserve to be punished. Right? That's, that's what we deserve. James says, if you want to show partiality and set yourself up as a judge over other people, then first, you need to realize that there is a judge over you. And because uh, you haven't kept the law, because you failed to obey it, uh, it's not looking good for you. Right? The verdict that's going to come from the judge is not a favorable one. Look at verse 12. It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged. Right? We're going to have to answer to the law of God. But we have to keep reading. Judged by what? James says, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And what does he call it, the law of liberty? Well, it's because something has changed in our relationship with God and the law. Right? The law that, that is supposed to bring judgment, that is supposed to enslave us, that is supposed to condemn us because we have failed to keep it, is now the law of liberty, the, li- the law that gives us freedom, uh, the law that allows us to flourish as, as God intended for us to flourish. And how has that changed? Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So God... The judge, the impartial judge, could have chosen to deal with us in one of two ways, right? He, he could have chosen us to give us judgment, or he, should have, or he could have given us mercy. And instead of giving us judgment, he shows us mercy. That even though we are guilty as transgressors of the entire law, that he has not dealt with us according to what we deserve. And the reason for that isn't because like, our obedience outweighed our disobedience or, or because our impressiveness outweighed our lack of impressiveness. The only reason, James says, that we can stand right before God is why? Because mercy triumphed over judgment. Here's the key part of that. That has to change who you are. 
Right? That has to change the kind of person you are. You can't be a recipient of mercy and not have it affect you and not have it completely transform you. Uh, when James says that judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, um, Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. His point is that if you are not a merciful person, then maybe it's because you haven't experienced mercy for yourself. Maybe you haven't received mercy for yourself. See, the thing about mercy, I think, in relation to, uh, in ju- in relation to judgment, in relation to, to partiality, is that mercy is its own category. Right? Um, this is not a, a perfect illustration, but let me try to explain what I mean. <clears throat> say you go to watch a movie, or say you go to uh, try a new restaurant that just opened, and uh, I think we probably know someone in each of these three categories. There is one, the friend who will always exaggerate the truth, right? Like, uh, whether that's positively or negatively. So like, that's, it's always the worst movie that they've ever seen or it's always the best meal they've ever had their entire life. Right? You know that kind of person who always exaggerates. Second, there is the friend who will try to offer an opinion that is as objective as possible. Right? So, so if, they offer, if they watch like, some like, seven-movie like, series, they'd be able to rank it in seven and then give you like, ten reasons why it, it goes between three and four or whatever, like someone who's just always as objective as possible. And then third, there is a friend who is always like super genuinely gracious. Like they are, you know that they are definitely giving this restaurant more credit than it deserves, right? Like it's not as good as they're saying it is, but they think it is. To show mercy isn't just to be more objective, right? It's not just to, like if you're being partial, to exercise more rational judgment, It's not just, hey, realize that this rich person isn't as rich as you think they are, or hey, this poor person isn't as poor as you think that he is. It's not just, hey, like stop exaggerating and give a more unbiased evaluation. To show mercy is to be totally aware of what is objectively and impartially true, and yet to treat other people better than they deserve. And the only possible way that you can do that is because you've experienced that mercy for yourself. Listen to how Tim Keller puts it. He says, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. And I worked hard to get where I am, so, and so can anyone else. That is the language of the moralist heart. I am only where I am of the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. You know what's crazy about the gospel? Is that if you are in Christ, when God lines you up, right, with, with everyone and with his son, and I think we all do this, right? We, we walk into a room and we, like, size people up. We rank people. Uh, like, where are the five people you would take in a, in a gunfight? You know, we, we do that all the time. We size people up. When God lines you up next to his perfect son, when he sizes you up, he sees no difference. He sees no distinction. That you've been joined with Christ. God, the perfect judge, looks at you in your shabby, dirty, smelly clothes, and he sees Jesus. And that, that is absolutely crazy. How can that be? Because mercy triumphed over judgment. I'm going to close just by reading from uh, Ephesians 2. I know this is a, 
a familiar passage, and um, I think actually by God's providence, it makes for a really nice side-by-side reading um, with our passage in James. You guys can turn there, Ephesians 2. Whenever you are tempted to show partiality when it comes to the seat of honor, I want you to listen to what Paul says that Jesus has done with his seat of honor. Okay, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And listen to this, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Christ gave up his seat of honor so that we might be seated in the heavenly places with him. And so, Father, in light of that, I pray that you would make us merciful people that that are willing to give up our seat of honor, that, that views others uh, as you view them, as fellow image bearers, as people that are more significant than us. Uh, help us to love like you do. Help us to have a heart like you do. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to transition to small groups. Uh, if you don't have a small group, you can come up here, and uh, I'll tell you where to go. Um, just a quick note. I wrote, like, extra small group questions, so I don't feel like you have to go through all of them. There's a lot. Uh, but there's more things that came to mind. So uh, hopefully you guys have a good discussion. Um, it's about 9.23 right now, maybe around 10.10 10 or so, 10.15. Uh, we can go out and get snacks in the foyer.